Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. My name is Jason. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, I love this church. I moved out here in 2008, uh, so I've been here 10, 10 years now, and I remember Candace mentioned, like, this is like home. This is literally her home. Well, at that season of my life in 2008, this was 100% like my house. Like, I, I did sleep at another place, but I was here at like 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. like every day, Monday through Friday. And then we did all three services we had to be here, and it was just constantly in this building. It was my house. I would eat my meals here, take naps here, like just walk around barefoot because it's just comfortable in it. Like, I love this church, and I, and I love getting to serve here. And what was great about the uh, FE Kids Christmas Bash was it, it felt like the volunteers that were helping, so many of you, were, were getting that, that spirit that this is, this is our house. You know, like, like it's almost like on Friday night football when, like, it's a home game and the, the kids are like, it's my house. Like, I got to defend it and protect it and represent it and, 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 and serve others because they're coming into my house. Except it's not that aggressive of football. It's more like, it's more like Lumiere and Cogsworth and Beauty and the Beast. I went from one end of the spectrum to the other on that, huh? Like, Sunday night football, Beauty and the Beast. Like, like it's like, be our guest, be our guest, put our service. To, like, that's what it was like around here. And, and you guys, the, the volunteers who are here, you did such a good job that one of those rare things that happens to me at events was able to happen. I could just experience it, be involved in it, walk around. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't putting out fires. I wasn't stuck at a station. I actually took a family picture because you guys served, and you served your best. You, you gave your best. Like, individuals bought their own costumes. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw the pictures of the Grinch. He came all the way from Whoville for this event. But, but that individual, we were like, hey, can you be a costume character? You're kind of silly and fun. He's like, I'm going to buy a Grinch costume. <laughs> what? We didn't ask you to do that. Yeah, yeah, I'll get it. And then he bought candy canes because the Grinch has to give out candy canes. And, like, and, and so many individuals purchased their own things and brought their own stuff so that we could serve our community the best way possible. And that was amazing. And that meant the world to me. It, 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 was, it was a moment at the end of the night, as Candace said, when everybody else was setting up the chairs, I just, I, I stepped back. And, and for me, I don't, like singing is worship for me. Like being in here singing with you all is worship, but serving is how I truly, it's like my love language of worship to God. And, and like anyone who loves singing worship songs loves it even more doing it in a group. It's called corporate worship. Well, I love setting up chairs as worship to God and doing it in a group. That's corporate worship, man. So I just got to be here worshiping God with my church the way that I communicate worship. So at one point, I grabbed the microphone, I walked up, and I said, everybody, stop what you're doing. What we're doing right now is worship. This is church. I love this. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you guys for that because we serve this community as worship. And not only that, we served baby Jesus on his birthday, right? Like everybody loves baby Jesus. As a matter of fact, upstairs, um, we did a nativity scavenger hunt where we did several like set pieces with backdrops and costumes and professional lighting. And, and, we, and we had in the, the last station was at the end of a hall, baby Jesus sitting in a manger. And there was this very cute girl. I watched her walk up the stairs and look around the corner and she went, <gasps> baby Jesus. And she runs up to a little plastic doll sitting in a manger with straw and was just so excited because who doesn't love baby Jesus? It's like, everybody loves Jesus. 
Everybody loves baby Jesus more. And I can illustrate this perfectly. Everybody loves Yoda, right? We all love Yoda. But everybody loves baby Yoda on The Mandalorian. Like, who's got Disney Plus out there? You guys need to get on it. It's like, it's like I, I read my Bible. I pray. I watch Mandalorian on Disney Plus. Like, like baby Yoda is so cute. And, and, and I, we all love babies. My mom growing up would tell everyone, I love babies. I love babies, and she just smell babies. I've never, like, except for my own children, smelled someone's baby. That just feels uncomfortable and weird to me. But, but like, she just, babies. But saying you like babies is like saying you like people for a very short period of time. I like, I like people, but just for a year. Then they're toddlers, and who likes toddlers, right? And then they become teenagers, and what crazy person would devote their life to teenagers? It's just nuts. They're scary and mean and rude. Anyway, you guys are rowdy. Knock it off. This is church. So, like, like we, we love babies. And I think people like the baby Jesus version the best because, like, when you look at a baby, it, it's not the boss of you. It's a baby. What's a baby going to do to me? Chew on my knuckle? Like, like, baby Jesus, he's just... Little baby, he can't tell me, he can't speak, can't do anything. He's just swaddling clothes, laying in a manger, helpless and cute. And we all love the Christmas baby Jesus. But here's the problem. Um, He didn't stay a baby. He wasn't a baby before then. He was a baby for one year. That's how I track infancy. You're you're not an infant after 12 months. You're a a one-year-old. Like Jesus was only a baby for one year. You've got on the left side of that, all of time, and on the right side of that, all of time, one year he's a baby. And that's the version you love the most. We did serve baby Jesus, but not because of his infancy, but because of who he really is. He's our king. As a matter of fact, in another biblical, uh, in in one of the gospels recording of Jesus' birth, it goes in a different direction than the one we've been studying in Luke. We're going to bring up on on the screen John 1-1 real quick. In the beginning, the word already existed. Jesus is the word. In the beginning, he already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He always was. It actually goes on. It's not going to be on the screen. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. When you think of the cute little baby Jesus, are you, are you picturing a tiny little baby? Are you picturing the word that became flesh? And dwelt among us. The very word of God that said, let there be light. That's Jesus. He is the word. He is king. That's who we served on Friday night when Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus read the story of Jesus, when they told the story of who Jesus was, when they gave the origins of the man that is now practically worshipped in our society as a deity who can bring children to all the uh, toys to all the children in the world. Like, Like, he sat there and said, you know, Jesus is the real miracle. Like, that's, he's our king. And because of that, we need to remember it. Because when he became a baby, he gave up his divinity. And we often want to remove that divinity from him by keeping him a baby. And that is a problem. We need to recognize him as what he became and who he is at the same time. That's why I think a truer definition of who he is rather than baby Jesus is the slave king, a slave king, 
an oxymoronic statement if you've ever heard one, like jumbo shrimp or icy hot or like good fast food. These things just don't exist, right? They're oxymorons. How can you be a slave and a king? How, how could you possibly be a slave and a king? A slave, subservient to everyone, the lowest of the low beneath everyone. King, above everyone, rules over everyone, absolute authority. Slave king. And not king of slaves, slave who is king. That's Jesus. And I want to show that to you as we continue to study our Written in the Stars series through the, the book of Luke, chapter 2. Uh, Candace has been preaching in this series the many prophecies that point to Jesus, that his, his very birth was foretold by the stars. It was prophesied for centuries, and because of that, we can learn many things. Like the first week, we learned that the, the magi, the wise men, they saw the star in the distance, and they, they came and they gave their best gift, and we should give our best gift to our Savior, and that was prophesied, foretold, and each gift meant something. Wasn't that a cool message? And then the next week, Candace, she preached on um, the, the fact that the angels showed up, and they worshiped Jesus at his birth, and then the shepherds worshiped Jesus at his birth, and both of them worshiped in drastically different ways, but it was in the best way that they could, so we should give our best worship. Today, I want to talk about how we should give our best service. We should serve the best way we can our slave king. So we're going to read Luke 2, verse 21, the story of Jesus being presented into the temple after his birth. And there's a lot of prophecy for me to break down here, so we're going to have to stop a few times, but I think we'll get through it together. Ready? Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, his name, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of the child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's firstborn child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. Here's the thing. They had to go through a purification offering. I, I want to explain that to you because I didn't know what it was, and I thought it would be interesting. Leviticus 12 describes what the purification offering is. When a woman has a child, she becomes ceremonially unclean. Remember, this isn't, this isn't anything spiritually. This is ceremonially. This is... Jewish culture, they had to be pure and perfect in order to worship God. So once you are unclean, you must be made clean. Once a woman has a child, she is unclean and she must be made clean. And there was a ritual to do that. It, it involved the sacrifice of a few uh, birds, or actually it would involve the sacrifice of a lamb and a bird, but they, God, he, he wants everyone to be able to be clean in his presence. So there was a there was the expensive sacrifice that you were supposed to give, a lamb and a bird, or the poor sacrifice you were supposed to give of two birds, and that's important later as we go on. And he had to give this offering because it mattered. And for Mary, it actually mattered a lot. Imagine you're a young, child, young woman, you've had your first child, anyone who's had a firstborn baby knows you're tired, you're drained, you're exhausted. And now you have to go through some religious ceremony. As a matter of fact, she would have had to travel nearly 26 miles to participate in this religious. And I remember five days after our first son was born, my wife could barely make it to the car, the amount of pain she was still in. And Mary had to travel 26 miles only about a month later, like to get him made clean. To, so that she could be made clean because she had to be clean so her son could be clean and she had to go through this purification ritual. It goes on to describe some of the laws they had to follow to keep Jesus spiritually um, 
upright in their society. It goes on, verse 23. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if it's their first child, he must be dedicated to the Lord. I, I want to explain this because there's a lot of prophecy inside of this. So the law that they're referring to, Exodus 13, 1 and 2, uh, you can read it on your own time, but basically it says, every firstborn animal, male animal, and every firstborn male human belongs to God. It is not yours. And, and now it actually got even more specific than this. So let's say you, you have a child and it is a girl, and then you have a child and it is a boy. That boy is not God's. It is not your firstborn child who is male. If the firstborn child of the womb is male, it is God's. That's the very strict law that had to be followed. As a matter of fact, it is so much God's that let's say your, your, um, your donkey has a firstborn baby donkey and that baby donkey is male. That baby donkey must be given to God. It is God's donkey. Give it to God. And you must bring it to the temple, give it to the priest, no longer your donkey. But if you'd like, you can buy back your own donkey. Doesn't that sound weird? This was my donkey 10 seconds ago, but because it's a boy donkey, it's no longer my donkey. That's God's law. It is his. And you can, if you so choose, buy it back. But the law got more specific 13 verses later. It said, however, you must buy back every firstborn son. With a donkey, you can choose to, to leave it but with your child, you must buy it back. So you have to purchase your own son. Weird, right? Can you imagine if hospitals instilled that policy? As a matter of fact, they kind of do. It's like that check doesn't clear. They're keeping the baby. It was, we, at York Hospital, it was the weirdest thing. Our, our son, Hero, our firstborn son, he, he had to go in the NICU. And any parent who's dealt with the NICU, it, it's weird. It doesn't, it didn't feel like he was our son because it's like they, they had all these rules and procedures and policies, and it just kept us so distant from our own child. It wasn't until we got him in that car that I was like, it's my son. It was this moment. I mean, I remember looking at him knowing he was mine, but it was like I had to ask permission to hold him and weird stuff. But like for Mary, her son was not hers until he was bought back. It was God's. He was owned by God, and, and she bought him back from God. And this is actually a really important image because there was a price set for the purchase of a firstborn male son. That price had been set a long, long time ago, long before Jesus came. That price was five shekels, the equivalent of five silver dollars. Five silver dollars. Five silver shekels, each weighing a gram as weighed at the temple. And it must be silver. And this is really interesting because you see, if they paid with any other type of currency, that currency wouldn't carry the intrinsic value that silver carries. Like, let's say modern days, I want to pay with cash. Well, how much does this cost? One silver dollar is worth about $17 uh, based off its weight in silver. So five of them is about $85. So here's 85 bucks, God, give me my son back. No, must be silver. Must carry the value that silver carries. And you know why it's five shekels? This is really interesting. Um, remember a few weeks ago, Candace talked about Jacob? Jacob, he was 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of Israel came from Jacob. Actually, Jacob's name was changed to Israel because Jacob meant deceiver. And that deceiver wrestled with God all night, literally fought and wrestled with God. And there's some imagery there that he might have been wrestling with the earthly manifestation of God. And what is the earthly manifestation of God other than Jesus? And he wrestled with that man all night. And then his name was changed to Israel, which means strives with or wrestles with God. And Jacob's name was changed on that day. And Jacob then had sons, 12 of them. And one of those sons was named Joseph. Jesus' father was named Joseph. And Joseph, he was sold into slavery in Egypt for five shekels. He was sold into slavery in Egypt for five shekels. And as a matter of fact, because Joseph was sold into slavery, he went to Egypt, he lived in Egypt, he actually became promoted from slave to king in Egypt. And then as the king in Egypt, there was a famine where, Joseph, or where Jacob lived with all of their sons and they came to Joseph and Joseph said, come live here in Egypt. And all of Jacob's family comes and lives in Egypt. And then they multiply, multiply, and multiply and they live in Egypt as the Hebrew people. But wait, there's so many of them that the Pharaoh made them slaves. Because Joseph was sold into slavery for five shekels, all of Israel became slaves. All of Israel became slaves because of a transfer of five shekels. And God wanted them to be free. And to free them, he killed the firstborn male of every family and every animal in the city of Egypt, the country of Egypt. He killed them all. And now he says, every firstborn male child you have is mine, and you must buy them back for the price that sold you into slavery in the first place. And Jesus was bought back at that price. It's planned beforehand. All of this has been designed and written in the stars because our slave king, can you imagine? God became flesh and then allowed himself to be purchased for the equivalent of 85 how demoralizing and dehumanizing is that? The purchasing of a human being. Our God became a human and allowed himself to be purchased like a slave for $85. Can you put a dollar amount on a human being? If somebody offered 85 bucks for me, I'd be like, come on, I'm at least worth 90. Like, you could do better than that, right? Like, 95? I don't know. That's not, like, not even worth my weight in silver? Like, come on. He was a slave, purchased at the price, predetermined for the sale of Joseph and all of Israel's slavery. But it, it doesn't stay there. It actually talks about the other religious uh, steps that had to be gone through so that Mary could be made ceremonially clean for this slave king that she gave birth to. Um, verse 24. So they offered a sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves, two turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, remember I said that this wasn't the actual sacrifice required to make her ceremonially clean. It was a lamb that would be slain and a bird, but she could not afford it. That's what that means. It means Jesus' family was so poor, they could afford the five shekels, but they could not afford a lamb. So they had to give the, the cheaper gift. And then, then these sacrifices, they would be treated in a very specific way. One bird would be a burnt offering. 
This burnt offering, it would be butchered. They would remove the entrails. They would discard them, and then they would place, so they'd take out all the, the dirty stuff from it, and then they'd place it on the altar to be burned. And by burned, I mean burned, charred, turned into ash. Nothing remains. And this animal, it would be described that it would be a sweet smell as unto the Lord because it would represent the destruction of the impurity of the individual worshiper presenting the sacrifice. So all of her impurity, all of her, her, her uncleanliness, all of her, her past, it would be consumed at the altar. That's one of the sacrifices. The other sacrifice was to be a sin offering. And that sin offering would be slaughtered. They would take some of the blood and they would sprinkle it on a different altar. So to represent that the blood was paying the price for the sin of the worshiper. One made them clean. The other forgave their sin. And then that second sacrifice would be cooked, possibly eaten, possibly discarded. It depended on the the use or the, the offerings that had been made that day. So this sin offering and this burnt offering paid the price so that Mary could be made clean. You know, there were actually other steps in her cleanliness process. A woman who had had a child had to wait until the, the flow of blood would stop, and then they had to be immersed in water and come back out to be sure that there was no blood remaining. You guys know how we do full immersion baptism here where we go down in the water and we come back up? That's what she would have to do to show that she was clean. That's what we do because Jesus has cleaned us. This imagery, it just goes all throughout scripture and it points to the fact that our slave king was meant to come, that he had a plan that he would not ignore and Mary was made clean so that. As a matter of fact, you know how he was bought with a price? That price didn't need to be paid. You know how how Mary had to pay a sacrifice because of the unclean sin that she gave to her son? She passed on the sin to her son. Jesus didn't have her sin on him. That sacrifice didn't need to be made, but she did it anyway because Jesus kept every single law so he could remain a perfect sacrifice. It was designed long ago, planned that he would be born as a slave. So what do we do with that? Now what? That's all really cool, but, but now what? As a matter of fact, the story doesn't stop there when he's in the temple. Because when you're in God's house, it isn't just about the moment of worship. It's about the relationships and connections and all the people surrounding you. And when Jesus was being presented at the temple, there was more in store for them that day. They encountered two individuals. And when we look at these two individuals, we will see how they served, what situations they served out of, and we will see how we can do our best service for our slave king and savior. So first we look at Simeon who served his savior. Verse 25, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was with him and, and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and, began, and praised God, saying, and I'll go into what he says in a second, but before we understand what he says, I want you to understand who Simeon is. Because Simeon was a successful man, and Simeon served from his success. Do you know you can do that? You can serve out of positions of success. Simeon served in that way. He served in success. And Simeon, he's a man whose name meant hearing. Simeon means to hear, hearing. And and his name, it's actually um, Jacob, 
one of his sons, actually his set, remember everything's gonna relate back to Jacob in this message. That's our, our prophecy point here. His second son was named Simeon. And Simeon is named after Jacob. And, and now Simeon is standing in front of Jesus, ready to prophesy over him. And Simeon was a very popular man. He was a very well-known man. The Bible describes him as righteous and devout. Can you imagine that kind of description over you? Righteous and devout. I, I, I was trying to think of what two words would people use. Stop laughing. What two words would people use to describe me? Righteous and devout? Or, you know, fun and enthusiastic? We'll go with that. How's that? Extra. That's what all my students are thinking. They're like, extra. That's what Jason is. So, like, he's righteous and devout. And I, was, I, I looked up these words in Greek because I'm like, isn't that the same thing? Is Because when words are repeated, they mean more. But actually, these Greek words have distinct definitions, and they're very different, fairly different things. The, the word righteous is dakalos, dakaios, yeah. And it means pertaining to being of high standards, of high reputation, of uprightness, of justice, and being fair. He had a high reputation. He was just and fair with others. This is a successful man whose, whose reputation was to be trusted and be counted upon. I then looked at some old commentaries. He was actually the son of another very reputable man in Jerusalem. He was a member of the great Sanhedrin. There were two Sanhedrins. These are like the courts. He was a member of the great Sanhedrin, the court that would rule over all of Jerusalem. This is basically think the Supreme Court. He, he would have been possibly a doctor helping with medical procedures, it is believed. He was... He was successful, he was reputable, he was followed, he had titles, he was known, he was probably well provided for, he was seen as a person you could count on. That's Simeon. And he was successful. So often in our society, success is seen as a detractor from one's own reputation. Uh, they're wealthy people. And, and, and I understand that sentiment because it, it's coming from a place of envy and who hasn't experienced envy in their life. But Simeon, he was successful, but that wasn't it. He was also devout because these, these things seem like they're connected, but they're actually distinct and different because the word devout, we could all imagine, means devout, God-fearing, pious, reverent, a servant of God, devout. He was successful in society, but he also honored and followed God. It goes on to describe that he heard from the Holy Spirit. He was successful in his worship of God. As people of God, we need to care what God thinks about us, but we should also care about our reputation in the world. Because the way people see us is how they see Christians, and the way people they see the way people see Christians is how they see Christ. Do they see successful people of industry working hard to improve their lives and live their best life, or do they see people who are like, "I don't care a thing about this world, because it's all going to hell in a handbasket, and I don't need to do anything about it because I have I've got a retirement plan, and I'm just waiting for that day." Or are we involved and invested in the society that we're a part of? Simeon was a part of the society he lived in, and he worked to make it better. He was seen as a man of repute. As Christians, we should be in the forefront of every industry we're a part of. Doctors, business people, lawyers, uh, politically minded, involved in our, our, our local government. We should be a part of the PTO, the CEA, the DIY. I don't know the acronyms because I'm not involved in any of them. We should serve in, on our kids' sports teams at soup kitchens. We should be helping become the, 
we should be solutions looking for problems in our society, people of report. We should manage our finances well, live our life in a way that invite others in and, and models our God. Because when Simeon served out of his success, he was seen as someone who could point to the Savior. He brought with him a reputation that preceded him. His, his pursuit of our Savior led him to be able to prophesy over Jesus. Can you imagine that kind of position? Jesus walks in the room and, and you're the one who can prophesy over him. He heard from the Holy Spirit and he responded and he was ready. His position of success made a way for him. See, a lot of times actually success detracts people from the ability to serve. I'm too busy. There's too much. I, I just can't. How could I fit it? I, I just, I'm, I'm so busy making money. You know, like I can't even do it. We learned a while back that the best people to recruit are people who are already busy because they know how to manage their time well. We, we learned a while back that the best people to recruit are the people who are already doing great things because they're going to do great things here. It, it, it's not people who have all the free time in the world because there's usually, like, why, like, like I, if you've already succeeded in life and you're retired, I am not jagging on anybody. I'm not trying to detract you. you like, you go, girl. You got it. Like, but there's a reason if you manage your time well, you've made more time to serve. If you've managed your money well, you've made more money to give. If you've managed your talents well, you've created more ability to do things. Successful people can serve our Savior in ways others can't. Simeon made room for this so that he could prophesy. And he prophesied in verse 29. This is actually a song. It's one of four songs recorded in the book of Luke. There's Mary's song, Zechariah's song, the angel's song, and now Simeon's song. So I'm not going to sing it. It doesn't rhyme in English, but... It was actually turned into a Latin poem uh, sung at services all over the globe and remembered throughout generations as part of Advent. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what had been said about him. Imagine, imagine you're... New, new parents. You've just gone through the stress of having a baby in a stable. You, you can't even afford the, the full and right offering. You've had to travel all the way to Bethlehem. Then you have the baby. Now you got to go all the way back to Jerusalem. This child, I'm sure, is crying throughout the night to eat. Like, like you are exhausted. You are haggard. You are tired. And then the, the pious, righteous, dev, like, like devout man of God, Simeon, recognized by all of Israel, as a part of the sand, he, like he's a ruler. Like he's, he walks up and he looks at you and he starts prophesying over your son. Here's a, here's a good definition of prophecy. Three things prophecy always does. It builds up, it cheers up, and it stirs up. Imagine you're a young parent and somebody says, what a beautiful baby. You are so blessed and favored. I remember that meaning the world to me. It's prophecy. It's, it, it's cheering me up. And then, and then they, it stirs you up so you can continue to do a good job. Now, there's more requirements of prophecy. Prophecy can't go against Scripture. It can't tear down. It, it, it shouldn't in itself be sinful. You can't just walk up to a stranger and be like, damn, you fine, girl, and expect that to be prophecy. Sure, it might be a compliment, but it's also very detracting of the purpose behind it, okay? So you can't just say nice things and call it prophecy. That's not what I'm saying. It has to line up with Scripture. But this certainly did, and it built them up. It stirred them up, and it, it cheered them up. He spent his whole life following God, being a devout man, so he knew. He had a framework and a structure that he could speak into about the Messiah, and he did it. 
See, here's how Simeon served with his success. First, he sought Jesus. We serve by seeking him. Simeon served by seeking him. He was looking for Jesus. And then, then when the Holy Spirit told him to go, he listened and he went and he sought Jesus. He was seeking. Then Simeon saw Jesus. He served by seeing him. You know how many people were in that temple and didn't recognize the one they were worshiping? He saw Jesus. Do you see him in front of you? That's how you can serve him. And then when he saw him, he shared him. He shared his ability to prophesy with the mother and father. This clearly is the Messiah we've waited for. He sought him, he saw him, and he shared him. And that's how we can serve him. Listen, if you're a successful individual, I'm not here to tell you, like, like build a new wing of the church. And, you know, like, do it. I, I mean, go for it. But that's, are you seeking him? Are you seeing him? Are you serving him? Are you sharing him? Are you a part of this? Because that's what Simeon did out of his success. He was clearly successful and busy man, but he made time for the Holy Spirit to lead him. He made time for him to see him, and then he shared him with his parents. He served his Savior. We then read about another individual, this time a woman, a woman, a prophetess who served God in the temple. Uh, her name was Anna. Luke 2.36, Anna, the prophet, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she became, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. She lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. I want to talk to you a little bit about Anna. Anna was a widow. A widow. In, her, in that culture, to have lost your husband and not remarried was a mark of shame. Simeon was able to serve the Savior out of success, but Anna had to serve out of a place of shame. A culture that would have reminded her of her position of shame. A widow, a woman. Women couldn't even enter the inner court without a man's escort and a reason to be sacrificing. They had the women's court that they had to remain in. That was their place of worship. It was as close as they could get to God. They were reminded every day that, that they were not a man. In a culture that, that should have been building them up, they were recognized as, as less. And then she was a widow. And, and not only a widow, a widow of 84 years. There's actually two ways to read that, that translation because of ancient languages. These translations can be tricky, but when you look at it, there's two ways you can read it. Either she was married, married for seven years, widowed, and then widowed for 84 years, or she was married and widowed and she lived to 84. There's two ways you can read it. Both are technically accurate. So she was either 84 years old or 105 years old, y'all. Hanging out in the temple all day, all night, worshiping God, fasting and praying. Anna's my hero. Simeon, he served from a position of honor, well provided for and cared for. She slept in the temple, lived off of the generosity and mercies of the people around her. But she served God anyway. She served him. You know, she's actually connected to Jacob as well. Uh, her father's name, which is mentioned and is important, is Fanuel. I'm probably saying that wrong. I'm almost certain I am. That comes from the name of the place where Jacob wrestled with the Lord. When Jacob wrestled with God and his name was changed to Israel, he named the place Fanuel, 
which means face to face with God. Anna, whose name means grace and favor, had the favor to come face to face with God. And she's the second person recorded in the Gospels to recognize the Savior of the world. This stuff has been planned since the very beginning. Her father was named face to face with God. Her name meant favor or grace. She was able to, even though she lived a life that would have been shamed by society, she lived 84 years as a widow just staying in the temple. When she saw Jesus, this is how she responds. Verse 38, she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Israel. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law, they returned home to Nazareth of Galilee. Anna was waiting there. She couldn't leave. She had to be there. And because she made that room, even in her position of shame, even when she was pushed out, even when it wasn't easy, she was ready to receive the Savior. She was ready to praise and worship God. It might not have been how she expected, but it happened and she celebrated and she shared it. You see, Anna, just like Simeon, she might not have been successful. She might not have been well-respected. She might not have been any of those things, but she was a prophetess ready to be used of God. She was a woman who said, I'm gonna serve God and I'm gonna lead people to the Savior. We could learn a lesson from Anna. And, and then She's seeking him, and then she sees him, and then she shares him. That's how she served him. Anna was seeking him. She was looking, looking for him, making herself ready, making herself available, being there in the presence of God whenever possible. I told you, we've talked a lot about the, the, the Christmas event that we had. I was setting up early around noon, and, and, and an individual, he's just driving by, and he pulls up, and he says, hey, I got off work early. Can I help? Absolutely. He stays and he helps for the next six hours and we get things done because he, he just stopped by the church to see if help was needed. He was looking for the opportunity and when we seek, we find. He was seeking. She was seeking. And then she saw Jesus and it says just at that moment, she sees him and she, right there, she's ready. She sees and then she starts worshiping right away. She didn't need any warm-up, any filler. Nobody had to grab the microphone and ask her to stand. She was ready to worship. And she worshiped, and then she shared him with anyone who would hear it, everyone who was seeking. She was ready to share, and that's how she served. When we talk about serving, we, we mention all the ways to serve, greeting, uh, ushering, uh, media team. Man, they got so many positions on the media team. They're training people right now up in the booth. What's up, guys? Like, like we, we have positions where you can serve kids ministry, youth ministry, the absolute best ministry of the church, youth ministry. I'll say it again, youth ministry. Like there's lots of places to serve. But you know the best way that you can serve God isn't by stacking chairs or placing down bulletins. It's by seeking him, seeing him, and then sharing him. You'll change the world with the message of the gospel. He died so that you could live. He was a slave so I could be made free. That's how you serve. There, I, I heard a story about a, a, the largest church in the world is in China and, and their parking lot attendance, it's just hundreds of people they need to, to work these, these parking lots. So, and they will not let you be a parking lot attendant unless you've prayed three hours a day and, and led someone to Jesus in the past month. And it's like, what? To park cars? And you know what their answer is? 
why would we let you do something as important as park cars if you can't do something as simple and pray and share the gospel? We have it backwards. We have it backwards so often. How do you serve? Change your whole life. Not hand out a flyer. Please hand out a flyer. You guys are doing immense change in the kingdom of God. I don't mean to demean any of that. I value that. I do that. That's my worship language. Don't forget. But it's secondary to the first truth. See him. Seek him. See him. And share him. That's the best service. If you want to give your best gift, it's, it's something that costs you something. I had a conversation with someone in between these services where he was like, man, I was really hit by that the best gift thing you guys have been talking about. And for me, it's not financial. You know, I, I give sacrificially already, and that's an easy thing for me. But I have a T-shirt I really love. It's my favorite. It's always been my favorite. And, and God told me to give that up. And I went, come on, God, that's my favorite T-shirt. It's my best gift, and I'm giving it to him. What's your best gift? Worship. How, what, what, what's your best way to worship? Have you found it? Are you seeking it? You spend the quiet time to find it? Have you made room in your life to, to worship out of success or shame or failure? Have you ever been in a worship service and you start to feel in your heart an emotion or a feeling, and but you suppress it? Or do you release it because that's your best worship? I'm sure it wasn't easy. Remember those shepherds? Those stinky men covered in filth from the fields had to come into town. Have you ever walked up to a farmer in like, the wrong environment. I waited tables at a very nice restaurant once and a group of farmers came in off a horse farm. People left the restaurant. Said, give me my check, I'm leaving. The smell was unbearable. These shepherds had to walk into a newborn baby's home and worship him. Are you doing that? That's the best they could give. Give your best. And then how do you serve your best? You change you. Change yourself grow and change because our God demonstrated that for us already. He was a slave king. And this slave king was prophesied about, written in the stars, planned, predestined 700 years before his birth. It was written in Isaiah 53, verse one. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths for our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You see, because one young man was sold into slavery for five coins, an entire nation became slaves. Because one man and woman disobeyed God and dishonored him, the entire 
world became slaves. So our God came down and became a slave, but never gave up his kingship. He allowed himself to be bought so that he could become the price paid, so that he could become the burnt sacrifice, the sin offerings, so that he could make us whole and new. Our slave king serves. He demonstrated it with his life. He washed the feet of 11 men. He walked this earth healing the blind, giving them true sight, bringing back the dead. He served. You know how he served? He seeks us. God is looking for you. He's been looking for you your whole life. Looking forward to this moment, maybe. And he, he wants to get closer. He's still looking. Those of you, you've responded to the gospel, he's still looking. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking. And you know what? When he looks at you, he sees you. You know how much he was looking for you? He came down to see you better, to know your experiences, to be tempted in every way and yet not sin. And when he came here, he saw you. He sees you. He sees you like no one else. My wife, she knows more about me than anyone and still loves me, and I love her for that. But my God knows me more intimately than she ever could. He looks to my soul and my heart, my innermost being, the dark places that I don't even know about. He sees them. He understands them. And yet he loves me. He sees you. He wants to share eternity with you. He's the best at serving. He's the best servant. The best servant. And he paid the price to buy you back. Slave king served you. Now what will you do? Will you seek him? When you see him, will you share him? Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your son to this broken, sinful world out of perfection. He left heaven, glorious perfection of your presence, and came to earth to walk this earth as a human being, to be fully God and fully man, to lead up to the moment of crucifixion, being tortured, put on a tree for us. But he didn't stay there. In fact, three days later, he rose again. He has victory over death, over sin, over the grave, over sickness. He is victorious. And his victory has been written in the stars just like ours. We now have no barriers between us and you, God. Nothing in between your presence that brings wholeness and healing to our body and souls. Nothing separating us from your love. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the freedom and hope that we can now walk in. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
again we humble our hearts before you we thank you for sending your son thank you that we get to come together in in groups like this as the church as the body of christ that you created and worship your name and encourage each other and go out from here too on a mission from you father thank you for giving us a purpose and a calling Thank you for allowing us to be used by you. Thank you for calling us a vibrant, passionate, selfless church who's called to change the world with the message of the gospel. Help us do that better than ever before. We worship you and we praise you as we go from here today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.